you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's beginning a new section here, and uh, we label this section as our Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Because the blood of Jesus rescued me, I have liberty in Jesus Christ. And this liberty that I have is freedom in this world. Now, uh, here's where the challenge lies. This is, number one, this is Paul's favorite topic. Paul loves to talk about our freedom in Christ. He loves to talk about the liberty that we have in Christ. Almost every letter that he wrote, he deals with the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. In this particular section, in this particular uh, passage of Scripture, he's going to talk about the limits of our liberty. The limits of our liberty. Because Jesus lives inside of us and because we've been set free. And by the way, when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, he fulfilled some 618 laws in the Old Testament. And now when those Old Testament laws were fulfilled, remember the veil in the Holy of Holies ripped from the top to the bottom. We're not under law anymore. Now we're under grace. And because we're under grace now, we have these Jews that are coming to Christ in Corinth as well as these Gentiles. But the Jews in particular, man, they're scratching their head going, what kind of liberty do we have? I mean, what, what commandments do we follow? I mean, we had 618 that we were following in Judaism. What do we have in Christianity? Well, remember, Jesus gave us two primary ones uh, in regards to the great uh, commandment. He said, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and the second's like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, saying all the laws and the prophets. So we exchanged all of these 618 Old Testament laws for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And because of that blood, we love Jesus with all of our heart, and we love others as we love Jesus Christ himself. And so we find here that Paul loves to talk about our Christian liberty, but there are limits to it. Let, let me, let's start like this. This will be fun. Let's take a test. Johnny, you like tests. I know. So let's take a test. So here, here, here's a fun test to take. Let's suppose, now this is all hypothetical, so just walk with me. Let's suppose we all shop at Ingalls. We all buy our groceries at Ingalls. Everybody here, we, we love Ingalls. That's where we're going to shop at Ingalls. Uh, we go to Ingalls and we shop, but here's the problem. Mr. Engel, let's suppose, converts to a false religion where he worships the false god Ra. And in order for him to worship Ra, he has to offer a sacrifice to that God. Which is no problem for Mr. Engel. He goes and he takes his uh, uh, cows he buys his cows from. He takes the best he's got. He sacrifices those cows. And he sacrifices them to Ra. And after he sacrifices them, he's got all this meat left over to wit. And he says, what in the world am I going to do with all this meat? I know what I'll do. I will mark it off half price. And I'll put it in the meat market and sell it. Now, it's great quality meat. It's great quality meat. Now, listen to me. I mean, because he doesn't offer to his false god anything but the best. So you've got the best meat in the whole grocery store, and it's half the price. I mean, it beats the hound dog out of Walmart. I mean, it absolutely is it. Now, here's the question. Do you buy it, and do you eat it? Let's take a test. How many of you in here would say, absolutely not. Pastor, you got to be out of your mind. There ain't no way. I ain't buying it. I ain't eating it. It was, it was sacrifice. It's sacrificial meat. I ain't going to do it. Not going to do it. How many is that you say, I'm not going to do it. It's all right. You're not condemned. It's okay. It's fine. All right. You can put your hands down. It's good. 
How many of you here, though, are going to say this? Preacher, I know that that false god Ra's not real. I know that he's not real. I mean, there's only one God, and that's God himself. There's only one. So it doesn't matter. That, meat, it, that wasn't really sacrificed to no idol because there is no such thing as an idol. I know there's only one God. I'm not going to have a problem. I'm buying the meat, and I'm taking the savings, and I'm going shopping. How many of that's you? Say, that's me. That's what I want to do. All right. How many of you didn't vote? You chicken. Chicken, chicken, chicken. It's okay. Chicken, chicken, chicken. So we don't want to be condemned. No, listen to me very carefully. This is the topic that Paul's going to deal with in chapter 8. See, in Corinth, they had a temple called the Temple of Apollos. And in the, in the Temple of Apollos, you had to make sacrifices. And those sacrifices uh, to Apollos were animals. Now remember, Paul said there's a crisis in Corinth. Remember what we said the crisis was? According to the church historian Tertullian, there was a crisis in regards to food. There was a food shortage, a food crisis, a famine. There was that going on in Corinth. Number two, we also know there was persecution starting up. Persecution was ramping up, and people were being persecuted for their faith. That was happening. Number three, remember it was an immoral city. I'm talking about it was a culture in crisis. And so with those three things, Paul says that this, there's a pre- present crisis going on in Corinth, and, it's, and it has to deal with these three things. But because there was no food, what was happening at the temple of Apollos, the priests were taking what they did not uh, eat and what they uh, did not burn up there on the sacrifice, and they were laying it out in the temple of Apollos for meat. And because there was a food shortage, you had to buy your meat there. And so, yes, you could probably go down to the other market and buy meat, but it would cost you twice as much. This was half price. It was the best quality meat anywhere in Corinth, and the Christians were saying, we don't know what to do. Do we buy it? Do we eat it? What kind of liberty do we have in Jesus Christ? We are confused. Paul, what can we do? What do we need to do? Here's what Paul says. If you found your place in chapter 8, verse 1, and able to stand, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Now, Paul says, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we uh, all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifieth. What he's saying is knowledge makes us prideful, but love edifies us. It brings us up, if you would. Verse 2. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For, though they be uh, that are called gods, little g's, whether they be in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. He says, I don't care what you call them, there's a lot of little g's running around here that, we're, that they're worshiping here. But, verse number 6, here's the primary point. But to us, that is born again children of God, that have Jesus Christ as their Savior, but unto us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him... And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we are by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with a conscience, uh, excuse me, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered up unto an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Uh, But meat commendeth us not to God. 
For neither if we eat are we better, neither if we do not eat are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit at meat in an idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through the, thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when we sin so against the brethren, we would, we would their weak conscience, uh, we, excuse me, we wound their weak conscience and ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat makes my brother to offend, I will not, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. You may be seated for prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God and thank you for our Christian liberty. In the name of Jesus, I pray that we would learn a great deal today about the liberty that we have in Christ and the limits and how we are limited in our Christian liberty. We love you, and we thank you, Father, that we have this time together. We pray, Father, that you would bless it. And God, as you do so, may you receive glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So the answer to our little mock quiz today was, if you answered and said, no, I would not eat it, then you were right. And if you answered and said, yes, I would eat it, you were right. Isn't that wonderful? Paul, what in the world are you talking about here in this text? He's simply talking about weaker brothers and sisters. Now, let me just go ahead and say this parenthetically about weak Christians. Weak brothers and sisters does not mean you are inferior. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about an inferior Christian. What he's talking about is a Christian that is not gone along in their spiritual maturity as others. There are some that are here that are more mature believers than others. And so in regards to that topic in particular, he's saying there that young Christians are weak in their faith and older Christians are mature in their faith, depending upon their walk with Jesus Christ. Now, now that we see this liberty here, he's just simply, Paul is simply saying here, look, in regards to your Christian freedom, a lot of people think freedom in Christ means this. Doing whatever you want to do. Paul never taught that as the freedom that we have in Christ. He never taught that. Paul always taught this. He said, true Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want, but it's knowing that you can do whatever you want, whatever you want but choosing to do the righteous thing. Knowing you can do whatever you want as a believer, but choosing to do the righteous thing. And that's what Paul's getting at here in this text. And so as he begins this teaching here in these first 13 verses of chapter 8, he points to three areas in a Christian's life that the Holy Spirit points to or uh, prods or moves inside of you, if you would, to regulate or limit our Christian freedom. So he points out these three things. What are the three things that the Holy Spirit uses to regulate or limit, if you would, our Christian freedom as we live in a crisis, uh, a culture of crisis. Let me give those to you. Number one, here's the first one. It's found in verses 1 through 3. The first one he talks about is Christian love. The Holy Spirit uses Christian love 
to regulate your Christian freedom. Now remember what Paul's already said about freedom. Paul has already said all things uh, are permissible by me. So I can do whatever I want to do. I've been set free in Jesus Christ. I, I drink as much as I want. I smoke as much as I want. I, 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 I do. The, the, the thing is this. My want to has changed. I want to, to please God. I want to live a righteous life. That's what he's talking about. I have the freedom to do whatever, but I know that true Christian freedom is doing what's right, what is righteous before God's eyes. You see, listen to me, Christian friend. Your life, you as a born-again child of God, have a purpose on this earth, and your purpose is that your life glorify God. And so while Christ has set us free, we are not hedonist. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is we don't do whatever we want to do and trample over the blood of Jesus Christ. No. We love God. We respect God. And knowing that we've been set free in the area of religion, we have been saved by grace through faith. And we're motivated by love and motivated by grace. And so when the Holy Spirit was deposited inside of us, the Holy Spirit goads us, goads us in the area of our Christian love. And that Christian love is how we respond to one another. And where you've got some uh, Christians that are not as mature as others, we treat them all with the same respect. We respect each other and we don't talk condescending down to one another. This is why Paul says in the text, Look at what he says. He says, we know, in verse 1, we know that we all have knowledge. Every one of us here, I don't care if you're a newborn Christian or if you've been a Christian your whole life, if you've been a Christian for 15, 20, 25, 30, 50, 60 years, every one of us have knowledge. That's what he says. But I want you to notice here, when he talks about this knowledge, he gives, first of all, a caution. Did you see the caution he gave? Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up. That is, knowledge will make you arrogant. If all you have is knowledge, it will puff you up. It speaks of an egotistical demonstration of superior living. He's saying that there are some of you Christians in Corinth, you're nothing but spiritual snobs. And what you're saying is you're walking around going, bless God, I'll eat whatever I want to. I've been set free in Jesus Christ. And that, that ain't no real idol. That's not real, so I'm going to sit down and eat it. He says, yes, you've got the right mindset. It is not a real idol, but you are being arrogant in your belief system, and you're hurting people with that. What he's saying is, don't be a spoiled brat Christian. Don't be arrogant about your Christian liberty. Don't be an arrogant Christian. Be a humble believer. Be someone that loves others. As a matter of fact, you see the clarification here. Not only does he give, if you would, a caution, knowledge makes you arrogant, but he also gives a clarification there. And look at what he says there in verse number 1 in the latter part. But love builds you up. Love builds up. Love edifies. It builds up, if you would, charity, edify. This word charity is a Greek word, agapeo. It's where we get our English word love or sacrificial love. And they were mature, if you would. Some of these believers were mature in their knowledge, but they weren't mature in their love. It was out of kilter. It was out of whack. And so what does that produce? It produces an arrogant Christian. 
And so Paul is going to address specifically the area of love in chapter 13. It's such a big deal in the Christian's life. Love has to be in balance. And if it's not in balance, we become arrogant. And so what Paul's saying here in this particular passage of Scripture is, listen, you have got to keep your love at the forefront of your life. As a matter of fact, he says two things, two facts about love in this particular verse that I really want you to get. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, And if any man... And think that he knoweth anything. He knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. Now remember, he just said love edifies. So he says, look, if you're not building people up with love, and you just have knowledge, you think you know something, but what you really know is nothing. You don't know everything you think you know. What does he mean when he says this in verse 2? He means simply this. Love always trumps knowledge. Love trumps knowledge every time. Every time love trumps knowledge. It is better to love than to fold your hands. I'm going to tell you why. I know something about that you don't know. And bless God, I'm going to tell you all about it. And, and you just be, and you're puffed up about it. That's what he's talking about. He says knowledge makes you arrogant, but love builds you up. And so exercise love because love trumps knowledge. And then number two, and it's found in verse number three, love always targets God. Love targets God. Look at what he says in verse 3. He goes on. But if any man love God, the same is known, if you would, of him. Paul is saying that if one is loved by God and loves God, he will also love other believers whom God loves, regardless of their spiritual maturity. If they're a new believer, he'll love them. If they're a middle-aged believer, he'll love them in their maturity. If they're a very more senior mature believer, then he will love them the same way. There's no favoritism of love. He has a sacrificial love for them. Why? Because they all and we all love God. John had something to say about this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to what John says. John says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begotteneth, loveth him also that is begotten of him. John just simply says what Paul is saying. If you love God, you're going to love people. And if you love people, you're going to love them with the same love by which you love God. It's a sacrificial love. So in these first three verses of chapter 8, Paul says love, Christian love, is the key to our Christian behavior in our Christian liberty. He says, in a culture of crisis, when things are flourishing economically, but morally it is on the downslide, Christians must love one another and let love rule within us to the point where our attitudes and actions towards other believers who may or may not be as mature as you and I and, and may not have the maturity that you and I have are so committed to one another that we love each other in spite of the spiritual maturity that we have. He simply says this, in the arena of your Christian liberty, the Lord Jesus Christ giving you the Holy Spirit may goad you in the arena of Christian love for a weaker brother's benefit. What is it, what, how can we apply this? We can apply it this way. Love God more. Love Him more. Love Him more than anything. The Holy Spirit will use Christian love to limit our Christian liberty. Number two, here's the second thing. 
The second thing he says, now remember, keep in mind, this is a corrective letter. He's correcting this challenge that Corinth has. But we're trying to contextualize the scriptures in a proper way to give us application for today. So he says, the Holy Spirit's going to use Christian love to uh, goad you, if you will, in regards to your conscience. Number two, here's the second thing. The Holy Spirit's also going to use a common sense conscience to goad you. Now remember, we are living in a day where a lot of people want to say, let your conscience be your God. No, that's a worldly way of living. We don't live that way as Christians. The Holy Spirit is our God. Amen? The Holy Spirit guides us. But as the Holy Spirit is our God, the, watch this, our conscience, we can't ignore it, is our goad. That is, the Holy Spirit will push on our conscience, if you would, and that pushing on our conscience relates to our Christian love, but it also relates to our common sense, bless God. And what he's saying here is that we need to have some, a common, some common sense in the arena of our conscience. And so in these verses, Paul is teaching the Corinthians and us some common sense truths about our conscience. What are some things about our conscience that you want to teach us, Paul? Number one, watch this. The first thing he says is in our conscience we know there is only one God. Look at what he says in verse number 4. He goes all the way to verse number 6 with this thought. He says, As concerning therefore eating those things which are offered as a sacrifice unto idols, we, talking about born-again children of God, know that is an absolute surety that an idol is nothing in this world. It is absolutely nothing. You see that idol over there? It is nothing. You look at the temple of Apollos, and you see those idols that are sitting there, out there? Those are nothing. They're, they're nothing but stone. They're nothing but wood. They're, at, they're nothing but just things. There is no life in them. They are dead false gods. And then what he says, and there is none other God but one. For though they that, be are, that are called gods, little g, whether in heaven or in earth, and there are a lot of them, he says in verse 5, but to us, to us born again children of God, there is but one God, the Father. God the Father. That is, he's speaking of the triune God here. Remember, he's talking about the Holy Spirit pushing on our conscience and goading our conscience. I love how Paul always talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here he's talking about the Father, the creator of all, of whom are all things. God created the world. But in his triune nature, being one God, the Father, he says, we are in him, we are in God. And how did we get to God? Through one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. We got to God through Jesus Christ, not that idol. So the idol's nothing. Jesus Christ is everything. There is only one God. Number two, our conscience also knows that believers are at different levels of spiritual maturity. Look at verse 7 in the, la- in the first part of the verse. How be it? He says, we all know this. How be it? Uh, there is not in every man that knowledge. He's saying that there are some born-again children of God who have not matured to that level yet. They, they haven't received that full le- level, if you would, of maturity in their life to clearly understand that that is a false God. Why are they struggling with that? Because they've just come out of that religion. They've just come out of that false religion. They've just come out of that, that terrible, terrible lifestyle. 
And coming out of that lifestyle, they're looking at you and you're buying your meat there in there. And while it's not wrong to buy meat in the temple because it's nothing, you have this weaker brother, this brand new Christian who sees that and his heart is breaking because he's at a different level of maturity that you are. Our conscience knows that. Uh, I think our little test this morning just simply showed this. There are different levels of maturity here in our church. Number three, here's the third thing he teaches. You can defile your conscience. A Christian can defile your conscience. Look at what he says in verse 7 again in the latter part. He says, For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eateth it as a thing of offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. He just simply says once again, They just come out of that false religion. And as they come out of that false religion, they don't fully understand the liberty that we have in Christ. And so because they just come out of that, they can't help in their mind thinking that that was sacrificed to idols. They know that there's only one God. They know that He's the real God. They know that that idol's nothing. But they have a hard time, if you would, rectifying in their mind and getting this thing straight in their mind that it's okay to buy that meat. And they're weak and their conscience is saying, don't do it and they're listening to their conscience and they're right but if they don't listen to their conscience then what ends up happening is their conscience becomes wounded if you would as the text goes on to say a little bit later and so he says you don't want that conscience to be wounded to the point of defilement he says so be careful that you don't defile your conscience a weak conscience uh, can cause you to sin even though the act in itself is not morally or spiritually wrong. So can you illustrate that? Well, let's talk about this first, and I will. Remember, a new believer in Corinth had a hard time not imagining that idol that was, that was sacrificed there, or the sacrifice that was made to that idol. And they know that there's only one real God. But perhaps they had not yet fully grasped the full knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ and the liberty that we have in Christ. And so their experience of their past paganism uh, were so fresh in their mind that they could not rationalize in their mind that that was a false God. And so their conscience goads them and says, don't eat that meat, don't eat that meat, don't do it. And so to go against that would defile their conscience. Let me give you a present day illustration. Many years ago, I went to uh, uh, Indonesia on a mission trip. And man, we had a great time. I love Indonesia, the largest Muslim uh, uh, country in the world. Had a lot of people come to know Christ as Savior. It was an amazing, an amazing trip. We had a hard day. We had worked from sun up to sundown. And it was already about 10 o'clock at night on this particular evening. And we hadn't had any supper. We had worked all day. And it was time to relax and to rest. And man, we were sore. We had ridden on boats. We had ridden in vans. We had hit every pothole in Indonesia. We had hit every wave. We were sore. We were hurting. And we're walking uh, to this uh, restaurant. And as we're walking to this restaurant, the missionary who had spent his whole life there had children born in Indonesia. He was an American. He said, guys, he said, stop right here. And so we stopped on, on the side of the road. He said, that building right there, that, that place of business is a massage parlor. He says it's legitimate. The lady that works in there is a born-again Christian. Uh, it's not a place of immorality. I'm telling you, they do a great job giving massages. He says, we need to, we're going to go in there and we're all going to get us a massage and we're going to feel better. I mean, it's going to be good. going to be good. 
And I look at one of my brothers that's with me, and he looks at me, and our eyes just kind of go up like that right there. And what happened was this. My conscience inside goaded me. And my conscience said, don't do it. Don't do it. And so I just, I looked at my brother there, and I, I just said, look, I, I said, uh, y'all, I, I, I'm, I'm out on that, okay? I said, and not trying to be rude, not trying to be ugly. I said, what I really want more than anything, we're in Sumatra. I said, I want some of that Sumatra coffee. That's what I want. That right there is good. That's all I need. I want to get some coffee, and then I want to go back, and I want to go to sleep. And so uh, me and a couple of others that decided not to do that went, and we sat down, drank coffee. It was a great, great, great evening. Had a great time. Now, were those that went and got a massage wrong? No, they weren't wrong. It was a reputable business. It was, it was legal as far as uh, not immoral. There was no more immorality there. Uh, it was all above board. Everything was right, and it was cheap. I mean, and they were relaxed. And, man, it was great. I mean, absolutely great. Well, so why didn't you do it? Well, I'll be honest with you. I've really thought about it, and I've really prayed about it. And I know the, that the Holy Spirit goaded my conscience. But here's what I didn't want. DeWitt, I didn't want to have to go home and explain to my wife why a little Christian Indonesian woman that loved Jesus rubbed her hands all over my body. I don't want to do that. So the Holy Spirit of God goaded me not to do that. And it was okay for everybody else. That was fine. No, no problems. Even the missionary's wife went. I mean, they all, they all went and had a wonderful time. But the Holy Spirit said, no, now listen to this. Watch this. If I would have ignored my conscience being goaded by the Holy Spirit, I would have sinned against my conscience. I would not have lost my salvation, but I'm going to tell you what I would have. I'd have felt guilty. After it was over, I'd have felt guilty. I'd have felt defiled. There'd have been a loss of joy. There'd have been a loss of uh, a, 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 a peace inside my heart. Why? Because I knew God said no, and I did it anyways. Paul had to deal with this very same topic about meat uh, in Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Listen to what he said. He said, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Now he says, look, if, you, uh, if your conscience tells you not to eat that meat and you go ahead and eat it, that means you're eating it in doubt. And if you eat it in doubt, he uses the word you are condemned. Now, that word condemned, uh, it's a New American Standard word. The King James says damned. The word damned there both and condemned both mean a, convic a conviction that falls upon you. You being under conviction where your conscience has cast judgment upon yourself. And he says because of this, you have eaten not of faith, but you've eaten out of just plain knowledge, and because of that, it's sin. You did not listen to your conscience. So building on these first two points, Paul's primary objective here is to say that anyone who causes a weaker brother to devile his conscience and his faith helps lead that brother into sin. So knowledge may tell you something is perfectly acceptable, but love will tell you don't do it because that's not acceptable for some Christian uh, believers. So he says here, the Holy Spirit will regulate your Christian freedom through your Christian love and also just through some common sense of your conscience. But then watch this, number three, and I close. This is it. He says there's a third part here. The third area that the Holy Spirit goads, if you would, pushes on your conscience. And that is conscientious conviction. Having a conscientious conviction. This is found in verses 8 through 13. In verses 8 through 13, we see Paul bringing his teaching into full circle. And as he does, it's clear 
that as a mature believer in Christ, we must have a conscientious conviction about weaker brothers and sisters and their spiritual maturity. And I want you to notice the reason why he gives this in these verses, in verses 8 through 13. Number one, the first reason that he gives this is so that we will not be a stumbling block. We will not be a stumbling block. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, But meat committeth not to God, for neither if we eat are we better, neither if we eat or we, or, or we eat not are we worse. Now let me stop because he's introducing this. He just simply says, Look, I don't care if you eat it or not. If you eat it, you're not going to be closer to God. If you don't eat it, you're not going to be closer to God. You're closer to God through prayer. You're closer to God through worship. You're closer to God through your living. It's not eating food that makes us right with God. But, he says, look at what he says, take heed. He said, but pay attention to this part, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them who, not, who are not as spiritually mature as you. You know it's okay to eat that meat. You know it's okay to buy that meat. You know that idol really doesn't exist. But you got a younger Christian brother or sister that's watching you. And if you do this, knowing that they're watching you, what happens is you become a stumbling block in front of them and you will cause them to sin. They just come out of that. We don't want them going back into it. So don't be a stumbling block. Number two, the second reason why we need to have a conscientious conviction is so that we don't embolden an immature believer to sin. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, that is your mature believer, and you're sitting at meat in an idol's temple, you're sitting down and you're eating in the temple, in this false god uh, of Apollos, you're there and you're eating this T-bone steak and you're just enjoying the hound dog out of it. He says, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols. Now I want you to note there's no discipleship here. It's only pure speculation. He is not discipling this individual. He's just being seen of this individual. And this individual is seeing him, if you would. And now he's become emboldened. The word emboldened there means to come to sin rather than come to Christ. Instead of coming to this guy and saying, Hey, listen, teach me about this. He's so immature. He's so weak in his faith. He doesn't understand the grace of God or the Christian maturity of you or himself, what does he end up doing? Ah, this Christian religion is a joke, and he just goes right back into the same sin. He's speaking here, if you would, of emboldening that Christian to come to sin rather than to come to Christ. And so then there's a third thing here, verse 11 through 13. The third reason why we need a conscientious conviction is so that we do not sin against Christ. Watch this. Look at verse 11. He goes on to say this. He says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish because of your knowledge. You know there's nothing wrong with it. But because you know this brother's weak, and remember he's talking about this arrogance, and because you're so puffed up and proud and arrogant, and you're not loving, and you're not tender, and you don't have tender mercies towards this guy, he says, you make this brother who has weak, he perishes. That word perish there means to fall into the sin. He falls into this sin. And he says, that's the sin Christ died for him for. You're pushing him back into the area because of your arrogant pride and the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Now catch that. That's what he's talking about, the arrogant pride. There's a way to handle it. There's a way to handle it, but not arrogantly, he says. 
So here we see the seriousness of causing a brother and sister to stumble. The point here is to control your freedom in Christ by having a conscientious conviction of others, thinking about others. It's about using our Christian liberty wisely and using it with love. And he says, we don't want you, Paul says, I don't want you to wound this young Christian's weak conscience. So how, how might that do this? Now again, remember, he's speaking in arrogance. He's an, an arrogant attitude. Not one of loving and compassion, helping this brother grow up in Christ. Let me give you an illustration, and i, I got to close. I'm out of time. So when I was a teenager, I was 16 years old, and I'd been saved two years. I was still being discipled, didn't know everything I needed to know, but this one thing I know, as a 16-year-old boy, I like to go play putt-putt. <laughs> so me and my best friend Trey, we were going to play putt-putt. So I went and picked him up, and... And the putt-putt, remember, putt-putt was, I've already told this story three times, so uh, I'm going to try to get it straight one more time. I'm going to pray putt-putt, and 